0: Thanks for listening to The Rest Is Politics. Sign up to The Rest Is Politics Plus. To enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room, and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to the rest is politics.com That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the rest is politics question time with me, Ast Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. Now, Rory, let's kick off with something that we're both quite fascinated by but you're sort of mildly obsessed with and that's uh open ai sam altman redacted good name for a listener following open ai's tumultuous weekend it's raised concerns about the stability and alignment of artificial general intelligence with human values. In light of this, what measures can governments take to ensure that the development and implementation of AGI not only aligns with, but also enhances human welfare and global interests? I mean, what the hell is going on? Well, so that, that that's the first thing. Nobody knows. It's, it's
1: really amazing. Um, the New York Times has written five articles, has thrown every journalist they've got, in their certainly their tech pages at it. And they've basically managed to find out nothing. Sam Altman won't comment, the chair won't comment. Just take it back for a bit for, for listeners. I think most people will understand. But OpenAI is the absolute center of the artificial intelligence revolution. That's the company that produced ChatGBT three and chat four. And Sam Altman was the CEO of OpenAI. He created this thing and is therefore one of the most significant. Tech entrepreneurs, businessmen, um, in the world, and the end of the last week, he was without any warning fired by his board. Yeah, which didn't include the chairman of the board, who also walked out in protest. So the CEO has gone, chairman of the board is gone, and they didn't bother. It seems to tell Microsoft that had just invested thirteen billion dollars in OpenAI, which is you know it's thirteen thousand million dollars, uh, but didn't bother to inform them.
0: They, so Microsoft now now hired him. So
1: Microsoft has now, Satya Nadella, who's the head of Microsoft, has now hired him in to run a a, an independent research institute for them. The phrase that keeps being repeated by OpenAI is that he's been fired for lack of transparency in interactions with the board, effectively undermining their decisions. So the idea is that he was getting on with a a agenda as the CEO that the board didn't endorse. But Mm. it's an unbelievable decision. And the story that people seem to be circling around, whether it's true or not, is that Ilya Sutskever, who is one of the other founders, and he's on the board, is worried that he wasn't taking seriously enough the ethical risks around AI. that Sam Altman was beginning to lean more and more heavily into the commercial opportunities. And This, of course, has been a criticism of Elon Musk, who we talked about in the last podcast. Elon Musk helped to get OpenAI off the ground when it was a charity, and has been in a boiling rage ever since. Now that it's gone partly commercial, with the money coming in from Microsoft, and of course, there's also on the side of the fact that AI is a potential risk. So, a lot of this is, is, is caught up. It seems, although we can't get to the bottom of it yet, in a frantic disagreement within the community mm. about whether there are moral risks
0: of it. Ilya Sutskever has put out a short statement, I deeply regret my participation in the board's actions. I never intended to harm open AI. I love everything we built together and will do everything I can to reunite the company. And obviously this guy, Altman, who I've never met is, is clearly very, very popular. There was a sort of massive walkout. This is something that we talked about with uh, Mustafa Suleiman and, and Reid Hoffman. And essentially there's this argument between people who think that the whole thing is going to be a uh, catastrophe and who really, really worry that what they're actually doing with the stuff that they're creating. And those who feel that they're more realist, which is that this is new technology, but it doesn't pose massive existential threats. And that's where Altman was. It, but but it does seem extraordinary that they can, despite them being massive Incredibly powerful, wealthy companies still sort of really behaving like startups. They're behaving like startups, and there's also a sense of how tiny
1: this world is. I mean, absolutely tiny this world is. I mean, a lot of the people we've been interviewing are on the boards of various of these companies, or are the major investors in of various of these companies. These are all their friends, so mm. it's it's got much more of a feeling of well, uh, I guess, of what it felt like with you when you were coming into office in '97 of a very close group of people who've known each other. For 15 20 years who basically many of them were at Stanford together um, Sam Altman ran the big venture capital firm the most famous sort of tech startup investing firm in California before he he went on to launch OpenAI. Mm. Many of these people that we talked about were at PayPal so Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, all these people Peter Thiel all knew each other when they were setting up um, PayPal. So no it's it's a tiny world. Um I think the other thing just just quickly I was having dinner with some very very interesting international CEOs so heads of big international companies american swedish spanish etc and how quickly ai is changing the way they think they were saying that nothing in 40 years of business they ever seen is having an impact as quickly as ai is mm. it, it's changing the way they think about tools it's changing the way they think about whole functions in their company do we even need to have a a call centre anymore? Do we even need software engineers? And It's also beginning to generate completely different ideas about what a business model can be. And In fact, I think if you were Labour coming in to run the British economy, the great hope would be that AI might actually lead to a real productivity revolution and that that might be the Mm. thing that would get growth off the ground again. I think this is something Tony Blair has been trying to say, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Well, that's why I think we were both quite pleased that Keir Starmer gave Peter Kyle this job that is... Sort of technology and innovation, which is clearly, you know, right. This this is right at the heart of it. So, I think a, a government that that really did have a strategy for that would, you know, it could be it could be the future of growth. We don't know. Yeah, I think. I mean, it could be amazing. I mean, the,
1: the, the problem is, of course, people are very sceptical because there's this great cliche from an economist who said we see computers everywhere except in the economic statistics. That technology was supposed to. 30, 40 years ago, bring these incredible productivity gains mm. that it never quite seemed to bring. One of the, the jokes is that you get ever better versions of PowerPoint, but instead of improving your productivity, you just make ever fancier PowerPoint decks. So the question question is, is AI finally going to produce what you want, which is getting more out of the same number of people? Yeah. Yeah. Now, your turn. All right. Here's a, here's a, a question for you. Um, Paragraph films. Why do news reporters scream the most ridiculous and unprofessional (laughs) comments and questions at politicians going in and out of buildings? And is there any strategy of answering these without becoming a story? Should the news be able to use these clips? It really grinds my gears." Can you give us an example of some of these questions that they share? What, what's the kind of thing that's annoying? Are
0: you going to resign, Home Secretary? <laughs> right, exactly. <yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then it, the more the Home Secretary it avoids the question, the more the question comes, are you going to resign, Home Secretary? Or, and some, and some, sometimes the question's like, are you a liar? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. Well, th- there was a guy who sadly, sadly died recently, but his, his nickname was Gobby. And he was the BBC doorstep guy. And he used to stand outside Downing Street and literally just shout those questions. But every now and again, somebody answers the truth. Right. Um, or they react in a way that kind of make they do something interesting. But but what would
1: be your advice to a cabinet minister walking out of Downing Street facing Gobby?
0: Oh, oh, uh, so smile and move on. Um, right. But if you think about it, that, that um, woman that Johnson made a dame, uh, Andrea Jenkins. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that she's really known for is is basically giving the middle finger yeah. to a bunch of photographers. I bet you that was in response to a shouted question, right? <laughs> so, so produce you know, the great photograph. Yeah, exactly. So you might get a reaction. Uh, most of the time, it's a completely wa- complete waste of time. I mean, when I, the only time that I've really had intense sort of personal media scrutiny was in the build-up to the the Iraq inquiry. And we had them outside the house the whole time. And I just decided day one I'm not going to say a single word at any point outside red. my house. Red, red. And I'm not going to look at them, react at them, nothing. And was it not a bit weird? Because presumably you you knew them all, some of these
1: people were a lot friends yeah. standing out there shouting yeah. at you. Yeah. And how does it feel to suddenly find that Your friends are now turned into a sort of baying crowd of lunatics on your front door.
0: The the really friendly ones probably wouldn't be baying, but they'd they'd be there. But you just have to go into a mindset that says they're not here. It's funny when I when I I actually went to the Iraq inquiry itself. I think I might have told you this before. There were dozens and dozens of media, and there were protesters, and the police said to me, the security people said to me, "Do you want to go in the back?" And I said, "No, there's no way I'm going in the back." So I walked through and i was so in the zone that i i wasn't even aware that things were being thrown at me i was just i just decided i'm going to walk from a to b i'm going to get to that door i'm going to go in nobody's going to be able to say that i sort of sculpt in the back and i got there and one of the people who was working for me she was in tears because she'd seen this, and I hadn't—I wasn't even aware of it. Because I just said to myself, "I'm going to walk through this now, and nothing matters." If you, you've just got to get in a mindset that says they're not there. Right. But you'd be amazed how often Gobby would get a response, some some kind of reaction, with a daft question. Now, Dutch elections, yeah. Biz Ponte,
1: the growth of anti-politics politicians shown in the Dutch New Social Contract, currently topping the polls. Could you discuss the upcoming general election in the Netherlands? Johannes, Dutch elections coming up. PM Mark Rutte not up for re-election. How important is seniority in international relations? Olin mm-hmm. Glashen. Do you think a new party in the UK could ever have the same sudden and rapid growth in popularity that Peter Omtzigt's N.S.C. party in the Netherlands has had, mm-hmm. such that they could pose a challenge to the two main UK political parties? Now, Alice, I after your you brought this up um, nobly last week and did a bit of Dutch. I like you got a few messages from friends in Holland, including a friend who was actually having dinner with Peter Omzig at oh, the wow. time and sent a photograph. And and I think that might mean that if we wanted to interview him on the show, he might be up for it. Good. But one one of the things was they said that we hadn't properly covered how he came to prominence. And yeah. this was an amazing thing called the the child childcare benefit scandal. So Tus Tus Lachen affair. Oh, very good. How's it? Yeah very good. that was very impressive. There was
0: a child a child benefit scandal.
1: Yeah, so a bit like you can see this a bit with what Jeremy Hunt's doing at the moment where he's saying that he's going to get tough on benefits. So basically the Dutch government seems to have gone very very hard on parents claiming child benefits. Suggested that they were fraudulent, demanded that they paid back a lot of money, particularly targeted immigrants, ended up driving a lot of families into hardship. And if I'm right Peter omskit was the first person to really come out clearly and call this out, and this brought down the government.
0: No, I, I was. It was very interesting because we, we we did our bit and we chatted away, and and I got lots of emails from people saying, "Very nice to hear you talk about the Netherlands." I think that you sort of got it right, but you really there was a big, big, big hole in what you were saying because they were saying, as you say, that this guy Omtzigt, he's been around for a long time, basically a kind of you know you'd have said a kind of lifetime backbencher, really, and he on the right, and uh, sort of Labour-ish MP, they basically exposed this scandal. And it led to, I hadn't, I didn't even know about this to my shame, but it led to lots of people killing themselves. It reminded me, when I read into it, it reminded me a little bit of that post office scandal here, um, where postmasters were being frankly, persecuted over things that they hadn't done. So it was an absolute sort of, you know, let's get tough on benefit fraud. Let's go after them. They went after them. This supposed fraud hunt pursued 10, between thirty and 40,000 people. And of course, then what happened, and this, this is a, an email I got from a guy called Paul Barley. And he said that essentially the government tried to cover it up. They were aided in that by lots of what he calls the media oligarchy. And Omtsik gained huge support because he refused to let the government sweep it under the carpet. And he was essentially sacked, um, but he kept going as an independent MP. And it really gave him a a prominence and and a popularity. And so he's now set up this new party, the NSC, which just was literally just a few weeks old. But interestingly, I then caught another very long email from somebody who said, you're absolutely right that uh, he's gone to the top in no time at all. But it's really weird because he he says he doesn't want to be prime minister. He's given no clarity on who he wants to form a coalition with. And the other thing that's happened is Wilders, the very right-wing guy, has actually risen in the polls. So the, the latest polls show this guy... Omsik in the lead, Vilders not far behind, and and Franz Timmerman, who's leading the Labour Green coalition, uh, he's a little bit behind them. Um, now,
1: question from Connor for you: What big policy are all the major parties missing out on? Where is a win being missed? Europe, it's the big one, isn't it? I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'd want to go for, I'd want to reopen at least the idea of customs union, mm. and and that's a huge gap in the market. Mm. Now, it's something presumably, could Keir Starmer do it courageously after coming in if he didn't put it in the manifesto, or would he be in trouble if he didn't put it in the manifesto?
0: Uh, I think what you could put in the manifesto is that, you know, the Brexit deal was a disaster. Boris Johnson, who led it, has been exposed as a complete liar and a charlatan. It's doing enormous damage to the country, and we'll have to review our arrangements with the European Union. Very good. That's all I would do. But I just, I just, I just don't think they're in the... I don't think they're in the same place. But also, if, we, if, if you're serious about growth, then you're going to have to do something about our relations with um, our closest neighbour. I was telling you last week about when the, the guys that we were talking to in Ireland. I mean, how many of them were saying that, you know, <laughs> it's just been a, it's been a disaster for them as well as for us. But at least they've now got, they can still trade with the the rest of the single market. So here's my big policy that 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 I
1: love and that everyone thinks I'm barking on. I think a huge citizens' assembly, which could almost be a third branch of government mm-hmm. advisory, so it wouldn't wouldn't be able to pass laws. But I've got a very interesting friend who's an Australian academic who suggested that what it might be able to do is if the citizens' assembly, and it'd be like a jury, so it would be people around the United Kingdom, demographically representative, randomly selected, sitting in this assembly for a period. If the government passed a law that the citizens assembly thought was really bad, they could push it back for a second vote and maybe even a second vote under a secret ballot mm. so so let let's imagine I don't know that Congress and the Senate had all uh, all the Republicans had voted sort of not to impeach Trump. Maybe if you pushed it back under a secret ballot, maybe they'd vote differently. Maybe the same would have been true with getting a soft brexit through that if you pushed it back and people could
0: vote under a secret ballot, you might have been able to get a self-praxie through. Yep. And also, although there would be there would be some cost to that, it, they wouldn't be huge because it's not a big spending thing. There's a question actually, sort of same theme, you yep. know, quality of democracy. Unlock Democracy wants to ask this question. One in seven UK citizens are currently not registered to vote. That's 8 million potential voters in the forthcoming election who exist outside of the UK's democratic processes. Should all parties commit to bringing in automatic voter registration in their manifestos?
1: Yes. I'd also like compulsory voting. I like compulsory voting. And where
0: are you on lowering the
1: voting age? Uh, no, no, I'm against you on that. Partly because I think it's a bit I, mean, I, I don't, we don't want to get drawn down into that, but it's a bit weird because so many bits of our society are about increasing ages from 16 to 18. Mm. For example, about your ability to deploy to fight and things like that. Mm.
0: Well, I go to loads of schools, as you know, and I think most kids in most schools know a lot more about politics than an awful lot of 50, 60, 70-year-olds. It's definitely
1: something I picked up when I was an MP, is if you wanted to be popular in schools, you definitely said (laughs) you you want to drop the voting age to 14, and everyone loves it.
0: The other thing I would do, again, pretty cost-neutral, I would take John Major's Nolan principles, and I would make them somehow applicable. With an outside judge to every single member of Parliament. Ooh, interesting! How about that? that?
1: Gosh, you'd have to set quite a high bar. You wouldn't want the judge interfering every second. No, exactly. You know, but just the fact of doing it, I think, would improve. Yeah, it'd be interesting. But you'd probably want to set it up with the hope that they would do it once or twice in a Parliament. Yeah, exactly. Really egregious thing. Exactly.
0: Okay, Rory, Lots more questions to get through. Let's take a quick break. Here's another one. Sam Dyson, and it relates to the behaviour of MPs. Two questions in one. One, should MPs be allowed to have second jobs that earn more than the standard MP's salary? B, should MPs be allowed to work for companies with links to people under UK economic sanctions? And this is about Brandon Lewis, who is not long ago in the cabinet and now he's picking up a very large six-figure slab for his relationship with some company that's under sanctions. What do you think of that, Rory Stewart?
1: Well, I think the key question always with this is conflict of interest. And I think that's what you really need to focus on above all. It's not the amount that you earn, it's whether the company you're working for conflicts with your public role. So that's why the most dangerous bit is the lobbying, uh, getting involved in contracts that touch mm. companies that you've been involved in, all that kind that, of, that's where the real Corruption
0: starts. But he was part. He was part of a cabinet which imposed sanctions post the invasion of Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I mean that that does seem a bit bizarre. I agree, that does seem a bit bizarre. I don't. Now, we, one of the big questions we haven't really done. And there's a lot of questions about is Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So we got three three questions on Rwanda, and they come from Totsi Flack, Andrew Watt, and Andrew Hosen. Totsi Flack, would someone discuss the actual cost benefit of the Rwanda plan? So aside from the legal moral injustice of it. I believe it's been incredibly expensive so far. 140 million. There we are. Andrew, what if Sunat goes ahead with a law which purports to assert definitively that Rwanda is a safe country? What are the implications of credibility of the king and the monarchy, mm. who has formed to give royal assent to a nonsense IMO? And Andrew Hosen, Rishi Sunat has been telling people he won't let a foreign court <laughs> block flights to Rwanda. The Supreme Court is a UK court. How can the Prime Minister get away with lying to people? How does this align with his commitment to integrity, professionalism, and accountability? So there we are. Um, So very quickly on the Rwanda thing, and, and again, this is maybe for people who've not been following it very closely. The broad idea from the government was that people arriving on boats, and in fact, they suggested at some point, all asylum claimants in the UK would be shipped off to Rwanda and their asylum claim would be processed in Rwanda. And the British government Gave a significant sum of money to the Rwanda government for the Rwanda government to agree to do this. And the Rwanda government built some quite upscale accommodation, certainly by Rwandan standards. And when I was in Rwanda, a lot of people were going to visit it. And, and I'm sure the Rwanda government was serious about trying to provide decent accommodation for people. The Supreme Court, though, knocked down the government's appeal to try to push ahead with this plan on the ground of something called refumo. And refumo is if you believe a country is likely to send the asylum seekers back to their home country, and they believe that Rwanda had a record of reformer. So, mm. this is important because the Supreme Court was not saying that the idea shipping people somewhere is illegal. And that's important because this may be very, very relevant for migrants crossing the Mediterranean. There's a very interesting article by Matthew Said on the, in the Times basically saying. The asylum system is fundamentally broken because when it was designed, it was not anticipating hundreds of millions of people to have a legitimate claim to asylum.
0: If somebody sent that to me, is that the one where he says that he wants us to talk about Libya? Hmm, maybe. I mean, he mentions Libya in it. Um, listen, I, 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 just how crazy this debate has got. I read that Rishi Sunak doesn't like the word refoulement because it's a bit French. Does sound a bit French, doesn't it? I mean la foule means the crowds, it's sort of recrowding is what it means. La foule. Wow. Um this is why I think Sunat's in trouble because when he stood outside number ten and said integrity, accountability, all that, professionalism, integrity, accountability, you've got to deliver on that. And what essentially this whole thing is saying is that we don't like the judgment, and therefore we're going to legislate to say that the judgment is wrong by signing a treaty with the country that they say isn't safe, for them to say that they're safe, and then we'll say to parliament that we're saying they're safe as well. And that's the law. This is something that Jonathan Sumption, who you're not always a big fan of, partly because he,
1: he stood for the Restore Trust, um, for the National Trust elections, which you've been grumbling about a lot. Yeah, but I'm, I'm mainly a fan. Mainly a fan. Anyway, Jonathan Sumption wrote a very good piece on this, saying yeah. that he has written, calling into question the European Court and Supreme Courts, and he's got a lot of sympathy with the government claiming that parliament is sovereign. But what parliament cannot do and what it seems to be suggesting that they might try to do is to rule on a matter of fact. Right? They can pass laws, but it's up to the courts to determine whether a country is or is not safe. You can't just rule that a country is safe. Fortunately, I don't think it's going to happen because we have a very good attorney general in the form of Victoria Prentice, who's very serious about these things, and I don't
0: think that Victoria Prentice would allow this to happen. Related to this, Rory, Norma Spark, why is it not in the public interest to publish the full costs of the Bibby Stockholm? This is the uh, floating barge in Dorset, which I saw, <laughs> by the way, when I was down at the Bridport Book Festival that you don't like me talking about. Rental costs, running costs, staff costs, and cost per head. I just huge shout out, Bridport. I mean, Honestly,
1: you've done more for the Bridport Book Festival than any man on earth. It's amazing. Are you going what you next? go next?
0: yeah, they, they want you to go. Do you have to go? I think I'll have to go now that I re- <laughs> now that you've sold. But then it you can go us. and see the, the Bibby Stockholm. But why you with were the prisons minister? What do you reckon roughly? What do you reckon it would be costing? A
1: huge amount of money. I mean, I'd, it'd be costing many hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to run this thing.
0: Why do they think that they shouldn't? It's public money. Why shouldn't they publish how much it's costing? I think it'll be in the hundreds of millions by now. Well, they'll have to eventually, won't they? I mean, the I don't the, know. Well, the public
1: audit office will. The national audit office will require yeah. it. I mean, you can't get away with not publishing your figures. I can't. I can't really understand what this not in the public interest stuff's about. It sounds to me like the government's embarrassed by how much it's spending and. It's yeah, for sure.
0: And and the the other question that was there in your the, the three questions we had loads of questions about Rwanda, but the the other one that you read out there was about you know the cost benefit analysis. I mean, they've. You know, let, let's just remember: not a single person has been flown. We're already into the 100 million plus territory. It is, God knows what it'll be up to when the legal bills come in. And then they're still determined to go ahead with it. So the costs are only going to rise. And meanwhile, if we do get to an election without it having happened, what a total waste of time and money. Very good.
1: Right. Now, we've got a final questioning, which is, Max, what books would you recommend to understand the UK political system? Now, there are lots of classics out there, depending on how serious you want to be. So, One of the great classics is a book by Peter Hennessy called Whitehall, which goes Mm -hmm. back many, many years, but is the great sort of investigation of how how Whitehall worked. I I would be tempted to say Catch-22 is a good insight into it. There's some great (laughs) books out by obviously James O'Brien, Ian Dunt, um, Ra- Raphael Baer, who of course I, I recommended last year and then got told off by you because he managed to put on the front of his book that it had been our book of the year. Um, little little plug though for an amazing book, which is quite a serious book, but I think a very, very well observed, wry, inventive book, which is just about to be published called Late Soviet Britain by Abby Innes. And Abby mm. basically argues that neoliberal economics has become as mad as sort of Soviet Economics under Brezhnev, as rigid, as sort of defended in an insane way, uh, and that the way to understand Britain is this: is what she calls an isomorphism. In other words, a, a sort of weird echo between late Soviet bureaucracy and British economic policy, from Major through Blair to David Cameron and now
0: Rishi Sunak. Very good, very good. I um, have I told you about my my new book that I've just finished. What? You
1: just written another book.
0: Yeah. No wonder you're never doing enough work on the podcast. Well, you oh, you're writing a oh, book. Bo- get off, honestly. How many hours of research have you done today?
1: No, not as much as you, probably. Although I don't know how much time you spent writing this book. What is this book? Um, it's a guide to politics for primary schools. Oh. So that's going to be a classic. You see, look at that as usual. You've beaten me to it. I was approached by a publisher to write
0: exactly that thing. Were you? And you've already written it. No point my even starting. Do you know what? I've really enjoyed it though, because it, it's it's actually, I mean, obviously my journalistic background is on tabloids where you have to sort of, you know, try and keep to as few words as possible to say quite complicated things. But it's really quite tough to do, you know, the history of parliament in like five paragraphs and that sort of thing. But I've really enjoyed it. And now it's, it's going to the illustrators. It's going to be one of those sort of, you know, lots of nice illustrations and stuff.
1: What a beautiful idea. Now, okay, that allows me to get in a little plug. So I have been uh, involved in making a documentary called Julius Caesar, The Making of a Dictator.
0: I read about it, and that's the first I knew about it. And and even though I asked you last week, how often do you talk about the Roman Empire, you didn't even mention it. Well, it's going to be out next Monday on
1: BBC Two at nine o'clock. I've done it with Tom Holland the great star of the rest is
0: history. This, is this why you've been angling to get Tom Holland on the podcast? I mean, Rory, you've got to declare these interests. You just be too <laughs> yeah, Tory about It's not that me that angling for that. Um, <laughs> so this show
1: is my trying to make the case that Julius Caesar was what we mean today by a populist. Ah. He is an early play of Donald Trump or Bolsonaro or the figure Millet that's now emerging in Argentina. He's somebody who pretends to be on the side of the people, in order to take power and wrecks the entire constitution of Rome. And what does Tom Holland think? Tom Holland thinks that Caesar is witty, glamorous, uh, bold, inventive, and that the whole thing is mesmerizing watching. then maybe that's being a bit unfair to Tom.
0: He, he did deliver, or is said to have delivered, or has had delivered through history, the greatest soundbite of all time. Yes, go on. Give us Give us your soundbite. Veni vidi vici. It's
1: good, isn't it? It's good, oh. good, good. Good. brilliant he, he also did a lot he also you know put the word july into the um into our calendar that's from old julius yeah reshaped yeah. the whole calendar and we're going to have the same debate of course around napoleon absolutely um, we're going to, andrew roberts and people are saying you know much underrated did wonderful yeah. things for france and people like me are trying to line up and say he's a grisly old dictator
0: ridley scott film is is getting rave reviews in britain and getting sort of slammed in france no. Um, how did you resolve the argument? Did you, do, do we have a public vote? Did you have a duel? What did you do? No, no.
1: It's, I mean, you, you just watched the documentary, and it's, it's rather beautifully done. Uh, the parts of Caesar and Cato are acted out, and we voice over what they were trying to do and what they were trying to achieve and what they thought. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think so. Um, if you want documentary on ancient Rome next Monday, nine o'clock.
0: Well, all those people who sent me a message last week saying, "Does he really think about Rome?" how many times did you say 12 a day or something i now understand it that's been a more recent thing but not all the time yeah
1: not all the time no no and congratulations on the book alistair and have a a great day
0: (laughs) all the best